Hi, I'm Madison Duffy, and you're very welcome to Bearing Point Talks, our regular series of podcasts on relevant industry topics of the day. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Montgomery, partner and global leader of Bearing Point's government and public sector segment, and Helen Crooks, firm-wide knowledge manager for government and public sector. Thank you both for joining me today. You're very welcome. So the focus of today's discussion is the new equilibrium that we believe will exist in society post-pandemic between how we consume services as consumers and citizens, either digitally or in person, and how we work as employees, either remotely or in the office. So Andrew, I'll start with you. You proposed that we call the title of this discussion, How to Create Vinyl Experiences for Citizens and Public Servants. Maybe you could start by explaining what you mean by that. Thanks, Madison. Uh, Yes, so in terms of both how we consume services and how people will work after the pandemic, I think we can think of it as two sides of an equation that needs to be balanced. Um, On on one side, it's about the different services we need as consumers, whether that's banking, retail, entertainment, transport or healthcare, for example. And on the other side, it's about how the people who provide those services work, either in an office remotely or some hybrid model. And of course, currently in terms of both how we access services and how we work, Uh, The needle is very much on the digital rather than the in-person side of the dial. Um, But that's going to change after the pandemic. And I think the question is where the new equilibrium will be. And the vinyl experience you refer to, I guess, is an analogy with what's happened in the music industry over the last few decades. Uh, When I first started buying albums, the most popular format was vinyl. And what you, in fact, got for your money was a much richer and multifaceted experience than just listening to songs. There were the lyrics on the sleeve to interpret the album artwork to enjoy and the songs themselves to be played on the guitar. And and this was usually all done in a social setting with friends because you had to club together to buy an album in the first place. Um, And then as we moved to digitalization, songs ended up being streamed one by one to personal devices, which was a much more individual and less social experience. Uh, And one which music consumers have moved away from in recent years, as we've seen with the dramatic increase in sales of of vinyl again. So similarly, uh, we believe that as consumers and employees, people uh, are going to reject the 100% digital experience and move back to more vinyl experiences to different degrees. Okay, that's that's really interesting. And I suppose with that in mind then, Andrew, how do you see things evolving over the next few months? Yeah, so I think what everyone realizes that in terms of digitalization and remote working, the pandemic has been this giant experiment that many organizations were probably keen to do, but which was ultimately forced on them by necessity rather than design. I think it's shown that obviously large parts of the economy and society can continue, but that others have been shut down completely. And that we certainly don't want to be living our lives or working anywhere close to 100% online. And I think most organizations have enough information now based on their experiences over the last 12 months on what will work and what won't um, for their customers and employees in the future. And I think it's also reinforced two key things around which delivery of services or ways of working need to be designed and which with the use of technology can be. The first is that as citizens and consumers, it should be possible to access most services 24-7 if we need them. And the second is that making a hard distinction between dedicated work time during the day and non-work time doesn't reflect reality. I think it should be perfectly possible to incorporate personal time for things like well-being activities, education, family commitments, or other appointments during the working day. And these are things that don't or can't always take place uh, before nine or or after five every day. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then Helen, I suppose it'd be great to talk specifically about the different balance between digital and in-person experiences we expect to see. And so perhaps you could give us some perspectives from Bearing Point's work with public and private sector clients across Europe. Yeah, thanks, Madison. So, you know, if we start by thinking of the experiences we all have as consumers, um, we can start to see this, the needle on the dial, as Andrew described it, either staying on one side on the digital side or moving back to more in-person experiences on the other side, and then all the varying degrees between those two. Um, but I do think we'll also start to see some new innovative, um, new experiences that combine the best of both worlds. If we start with something like personal banking, so I think it's fair to say we were all probably engaging digitally uh, with our personal banking before the pandemic. And I don't think that this is going to change. So I think this will be the same post pandemic. And, you know, future generations may well never need to go face to face in a bank. Would you agree? You know, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, Helen. I mean, I think the the next generation um We'll do all their interactions through through ATMs or online. Online, yeah. Um, if you look at something then like retail, so I think for retail, we'll expect to see a move back to more of a hybrid model just because this there's a whole social aspect to retail, the in-store experience. And I, for one, have missed that <laughs> while, while the shops have been closed. Uh, so I think we'll see the in-store combined with online purchasing. And I think it's been really interesting um, from retail perspective just to see how retailers, retailers have, um, you know, proved themselves at these extraordinary processing times. Um, you know, I could purchase something today, I click on it today, it'll arrive at my home tomorrow. Um, I can try it on in the comfort of my own home. If it doesn't suit online with a few more clicks, I can have it picked up from my home um, and the return will be processed. I'll have the money back in my account within a couple of days. Um, so it's, I think that that online side has really been proven. I think there are people, I myself probably would have had reservations about online shopping for some things. You know, you want to see the product, you want to touch the product. But I think... Um, it has been proven over the last year that actually the online is incredibly efficient and it works. Um, another aspect of retail then is food. And I think we're starting to see a, a move to yeah. local local food stores. Yeah, I think I think food is an interesting one because I think, you know, we've clearly seen a trend where there's, you know, a sort of rebalancing of consumer loyalty to to local stores and neighborhood shops and away from multiples. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's great. It's great to yeah. see. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, probably we've all built up much greater personal connections with, you know, the owners and, and proprietors, um, you know, and hopefully I think that that will stay. Um, and we've a greater appreciation for, you know, local food producers over global brands, perhaps. And I think with more people working locally, we can see a, a return to models where, you know, people use maybe the extra time they have in the working day, uh, you know, to, to get various uh, items from several small retailers rather than yeah. all together in a supermarket, for example. Yeah, I think when you're time poor, you need to go to the big supermarket to get everything in the same place. Whereas, yeah. you know, people, yeah, you're right. People have more time now. They can go to a number of different shops. Yeah. Um, then there's hospitality. So I think, I think this is where we might actually start to see some really innovative hybrid experiences. Like obviously something like restaurants, the walk-in element um, is probably gone now. You'll need to make your booking in advance. Um, but I, I think beyond that, then um, the overall experience may be augmented. So you may 
for example, when you go to make your booking, you could view the restaurant layout, um, the different table locations. You yeah, might pick the best yeah. table with the nicest view. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Um, there may even be interactions with the chef in terms of preparing the menu. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see that, watch that space and see what happens there. Yeah. Then I think when you look on the public sector side of things, I think we can we can imagine a similar picture in, t- in terms of the equilibrium. I think a key difference is that the public sector obviously hasn't got any discretion in terms of who it serves and it must provide services to the entire population, whatever their profile and wherever they're located and, and via a number of channels. Absolutely. Yeah. So look, look at something like healthcare. There's simply no option, but there was, you know, they have to maintain the in-person engagement, albeit with safety procedures, et cetera, in place. Um, but I do think with healthcare going forward, we could probably see um, an increase in telehealth initiatives, you know, maybe remote monitoring of patient diagnostics or the associated treatments. So I think that'll probably be a hybrid in-person and digital experience um, in the future. Something like education then, I don't think anyone thinks otherwise, but that primary and secondary education, you know, it should be 100% in-person, in-classroom scenario. But, you know, with homeschooling over the last year and the various school closures, the online learning option is now proven. So there's a structure in place to support that. So I do think um, going forward, while it will be obviously 100% in-classroom, please God, um, if a child is displaying symptoms or if somebody broke their leg and they were out for a week or two, there is now that support structure in place to to support their continued learning online that wasn't there before. So, you know, potentially what used to be snow days, maybe maybe they're a thing of the past. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, I think as a parent, certainly, I, I'd be very much in favour of, of that model going forward. Um, <laughs> no days off anymore. No, absolutely. Uh, and then I think, when, I mean, if you look at sort of general public sector entitlement or, or taxation services, even for citizens or anything to do with issuance of an entitlement document. I think the future model will clearly be as close to 100% digital as possible. Um, and I think with the appropriate sort of identity, data security, authentication mechanisms in place, there really should be little need for citizens to attend a, a government office in person for those yeah. sorts of transactions, except obviously in emergency or, or exceptional situations. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I suppose even having said that, the key difference with public sector is it's one of the most people intensive sectors of all. And I don't think we can expect that. to. I know I think it'll stay that way. So um, while there's still a lot of work to do to digitalize services, I think we can always expect to see a high level of in-person experience, whether that's education, as we discussed, or policing um, or social care. I think it's it's always going to be people intensive. No, absolutely. Um, I think, look, you know, Helen, we've talked a lot about the sort of consumer, citizen and demand side of the equation. I mean, the other side is, of course, the the people and the public servants who are providing those services. Um, And there's obviously been a lot of debate around what future remote working models will look like. And I think there's probably even more parameters on this side of the equation to to consider. Um, Of course, no two public sector organizations are the same in terms of the services they provide, you know, the profiles of their employees, where they live, their skill set, work-life balance needs. So I think talking about creating new models or structures is the wrong way to frame the challenge. I think it's much more about trying to create a culture and an environment within a, a small number of parameters or constraints to allow employees work effectively uh, over the course of the whole week. 
Yeah, and it's been really interesting to see what the experience has been for our government and public sector clients and their people working um, during the pandemic, particularly those working on the front line. Um, as you know, Andrew, we completed a major European yeah. survey during the crisis um, with over 3,500 public servants across eight countries. Um, and we could see from that the demands on health workers, teachers, first responders, civil servants, they were all increased and very different. Um, but there is consistent feedback coming through in relation to a couple of needs. So um, a need to improve capabilities and skills to manage in a remote and in a digital world, a need to modernize technologies um, and need to increase the availability of real time information. Sure, yeah. And um, a need to improve the level of collaboration both within and between um, various agencies. So when you consider things at an organizational level, I don't think it'll be a case that any one model will emerge that fits all. Um, just given the variations in the remits for public sector organizations and the, the different demographics of the workforce. So due to the nature of their roles, I think health workers, teachers, as we've discussed, policing, they'll all largely return to pre-pandemic work models, but there will be the um, enhanced technology that we've talked about. Then administrative and service fulfillment business units, the balance will probably be between remote and office-based working, and that'll vary depending on the different areas like contact centres, um, application processing, finance, IT, HR, you know, all the different functions. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think then, I mean, if you look at the the bigger picture, I guess, I mean, the ultimate objective really is to create a society and economy whereby, you know, citizens have access to a comparable level of services, regardless of whether they live in cities, urban areas, towns or, or, or villages. And also that from an employment perspective, that people have uh, more equitable access to job opportunities without always having to move to urban areas and technology and things like broadband are obviously key enablers not always to replace the social and in-person experience but to complement it in areas of the country or at times of the day where other channels are not available um, and I think getting the balance right in this equation um, you know can clearly deliver benefits in, in a number of areas I think look from a environmental and societal perspective there's a huge opportunity to reduce you know the level of commuting congestion and emissions by having people work remotely for a greater proportion of the week and then for you know individual organizations we can anticipate that you know it should provide greater access for them to the talent pool in the market you know and just support greater organization agility and flexibility overall and then from the employees perspective you know i think many organizations have already seen tangible benefits in terms of you know overall well-being productivity uh, and general staff engagement levels uh, overall i guess yeah definitely yeah that's all really interesting and lots to think about and um, so i guess with that in mind andrew what are the key things that public sector organizations need to focus on i suppose i guess many are still operating in a business as unusual context yeah sure but are also adjusting their operating models to align with the new normal, you would think? Yeah, well, I think we're already seeing, you know, obviously people making plans and, and focusing on, you know, uh, you know, post-pandemic world. I think from a demand perspective, I think it's firstly about getting a clear picture of what the future demand patterns for the services that each public sector organization provides is across its different citizen groups. And then what levers does it have at its disposal to manage that demand 
Um, and then I think it's about, you know, very much taking the learnings from the last 12 months and looking at seeing what the, the right channel strategy to provide services is via online or, or in-person channels. And then I think it's about building the agility and resilience into their operating models to allow them to 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 move quickly uh, and you know move citizens to alternate channels in times of exceptional demand and redeploy financial and human resources accordingly. Yeah, definitely. Like from a people perspective, it has to start with a robust mechanism for planning the workforce. So the capacities and capabilities needed and also being able to source alternative mechanisms um, to support with, say, periods of high demand or just where the in-house skills aren't available. Um, and then there's looking at this working week from a whole new perspective. So the new ways of working that are much more focused and based around the outcome and the outputs to be achieved at the end of a week, as opposed to the, you know, 35 hours, nine to five, five days a week. Um, you know, and this can factor in then appropriate work-life balance on a daily basis. And then I think finally, you know, we need to understand the core competencies that public servants need to be effective in a digital and remote environment and putting a program in place to support this, not just to support the additional training, but to really add to improve collaboration, well-being, well-being and staff engagement. Yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot to think about there. That's great, though. Um, yeah. So I just want to say thank you both for that discussion. Um, it's been very interesting. And thank you for sharing your insights and perspectives. You know, I think definitely setting out the challenge in terms of both citizens on one side and then the public servants on the other makes it really clear just in terms of understanding the new equilibrium and the balance that organizations need to find. Um, so thank you for taking us through that. But before we go, I'd like to return to the vinyl topic and ask you both one very important question. So what was the first <laughs> record or album you bought and does it have any relevance to the discussion we have just had? So Helen, I'll put you in the hot seat first. <laughs> Bearing absolutely no relevance whatsoever to the discussion we've just had. My first vinyl record was Kylie. And I think it was her, it was her first album. And I think it was just called Kylie. And I absolutely loved it. It had her classics, Locomotion, I Should Be So Lucky, Cheesy Pop. I loved it. <laughs> How about you, Andrew? Yeah. So um, maybe slightly more relevant, um, <laughs> I think. Uh, I think the first single I bought was a song called Banana Republic by the Boomtown Rats, uh, which was Bob Geldof's views on society and the economy in Ireland in the in the early 1980s. Uh, and thankfully, the pandemic aside, uh, it's a much different country we, we all live in today. Um, and the first album I bought was uh, the appropriately titled Business as Usual by Men at Work, uh, which is what obviously we're hopefully all returning to over the next few months, albeit that we'll certainly be consuming services and working in new ways. Great. Polar opposite music taste there, I Absolutely. think. <laughs> um, but on that note, I think it's now time for us all to go and maybe put some vinyl on the turntable. Um, I'm not sure if you both still have your records or not, but maybe you could put them on if you do. Yeah, just, just it off. It's in the attic somewhere. <laughs> So a big thank you to Helen and Andrew for that very interesting discussion and for joining us today. And a big thanks to everyone who's tuned in. I'm Madison Duffy and you've been listening to Bearing Point Talks.